Hello, and thanks for listening to this episode of Healthcare 360 by BILH. I am Rob Fields. I'm the Chief Clinical Officer here at Beth Israel Leahy Health, and I'm excited to have a group of colleagues here today to really describe a bit about not only our work in the community and our mission, but also how we put together a collaboration among our team. So I'm excited for this discussion. And we're pushing our technical limits here for the first time on Healthcare 360 with multiple interviewees. So I'm going to actually ask each of them to introduce themselves. And so Nancy, I'll start with you if you don't mind. Great. So thanks for inviting me. I'm Nancy Kaysen. I'm the Vice President of Community Benefits and Community Relations here at Beth Israel Leahy Health. And I also have the distinct honor of serving as the Managing Director of the Community Care Alliance, which is the health center network that is affiliated with Beth Israel Leahy Health, caring for about 121,000 low-resource patients on an annual basis. Nancy, how did you, if you can talk a little bit about how you got in this role, what drives you every day to do this kind of work? Because it's not easy. So interestingly, I started in banking and insurance, and then I decided... That seems like a natural progression. And then, well, (laughs) business principles and efficiencies and economies of scale really do Mm -hmm. apply to the work that I do. Mm -hmm. But I've changed it to be a mission-driven process where our focus, where I want to extend care to the most people, making our scarce resources go or stretch a little bit further. So I've been in this role since the inception of Beth Israel Leahy Health. And prior to that, I was at BIDMC, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, serving as the director of community benefits and Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center represents roughly between 40 to 50 percent of all community benefit expenditures and programming for the system. Wow awesome well thanks for joining us today and Kelly I'll turn it over to you. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. My name is Kelly O'Neill. I'm a nurse. I am the executive director for the Beth Israel Leahy Performance Network, and I oversee the care management department. I've been here for a little over a year, and what drives me in this role? If I was to reflect back on my journey and how I got here, I just took a few leaps and kind of trusted what drove me. So I was a case manager. I worked for a company in Connecticut as a visiting nurse, and I saw the disconnect between patients that were leaving the hospital and and then what they really needed to succeed at home and in the community and the challenge with making those linkages. So when I moved back from Connecticut to Massachusetts, I actually entered into hospital-based case management. And then in 2012, really at the inception of some of these value-based care arrangements, the organization in which I worked with was looking to branch into transitional care platforms. And I thought it just spoke to me because I had seen both sides. I had seen what happened at home and I was seeing what was happening in the walls of the institution. And I thought it was a great fit for me to be able to develop the programs around transitional care at the time. And that just blossomed as value-based care blossomed into different ACO arrangements and looking at population health and what are some of the different care management programs that you need to build to support patients along their healthcare journey. So that's me. That's what drives me, continues to drive me in my role today. And healthcare is always changing. So it's great to be innovative and collaborating and looking for new ways to impact health. Awesome. Thank you. And just to clarify, Bill Penn, for those that are listening and are not familiar with our system, is really our population health arm for the system. It includes you know, our managed care functions and our network functions. So I think will be relevant as part of this discussion as we think about how we put all these pieces together. But last but not least, we are joined by Dan Curley. So Dan, please introduce yourself. Thank you very much, Robin. Thank you for having me today and us. As Rob said, my name is Dan Curley. I'm the program manager of the Beth Israel Leahy Health Medicaid ACOs. I've been with Beth Israel Leahy Health for about four years. My journey in healthcare started probably about eight years ago, and Nancy actually stole my thunder, and I really appreciated that. I was working for State Street, and I loved what I was doing at State Street. 
but I was working for a bottom-line-driven organization. So each year I would get up, and I would love what I was doing, but I wanted to be part of a mission-driven organization. And at that point, I think I sent off my resume to everyone, and Network Health, which was owned by Tufts Health Plan, gave me an interview, and I started working for them on the payer side just to kind of learn about you know this patient population. And I worked specifically with the Medicaid population. After I left... Tufts Health Plan. Dr. Doug Shu gave me the opportunity as the program manager of the BIDCO, or Beth Ridiculous Care Organization, ACO, where I've been kind of working with this mass health population since about four years ago. What drives me is that seeing the work that our community health workers do, that our social workers do, that each person that works in one of the practices does, because a lot of these patients don't have a voice, and mm-hmm. or they're timid and they don't know how to speak up and for us to be able to work in the community partner space the flexible service space the care management space is paramount to be able to get them the help that they need so that's why i do what i do every single day and i'm proud of it yeah that's awesome well very clearly a very mission-driven bunch here we have today which is great and i think really important for our conversation around as part of our strategy as a system how we link communities and community care with our population health and operations and strategy and put those together in the context of, as we've you know learned from our previous podcast, in a new system that's trying to put the pieces together themselves and connect the teams and to turn it into an operational function. So it's a sort of parallel story of what's happening in healthcare and what's happening within our system. Nancy, I'll start with you. Community benefits as a function in nonprofit health systems is if you're in healthcare, you know, at least theoretically what it's supposed to do, but it obviously gets manifested very differently in every system. So I would wonder if you'd share a little bit about generally what community benefits functions do for nonprofit health systems generically, but more importantly, how you view your work and how you drive it within this context. So community benefits is historically, its origins are really not only from the mission-driven aspect of most of nonprofit hospitals and their founding tenants, but the stick piece of it is the regulatory aspect that is governed by the Affordable Care Act through the 501R and the Internal Revenue Service. And then Massachusetts has very robust requirements as far as the Attorney General's office. And then there's also other aspects related to payment in lieu of taxes and pilots. I'm not going to go into the whole regulatory aspect. And then we also have any time a hospital wants to get a large capital project or capital expenditure, we have other regulations related to or sub-regulatory guidelines Mm -hmm. related to community benefits. So all of that sort of applies to the work that we do in checking the box and meeting the immediate requirement as far as the regulators are concerned. At Beth Israel Ahe Health, we really are trying to better integrate with other departments, including the performance network, primary care, behavioral services, to come together as a system to employ more evidence-informed and evidence-based strategies. The flaw, if I sort of admit to that in community benefits, is we are in an endless cycle of grant making that has limited impact despite our best efforts for evidence-informed and evidence-based strategies, simply based on the way that community benefits and all of these regulations culminate to impact what we can and cannot do in the way we can and cannot do it. So what we've been trying to do as a system, or what I've been sort of strategizing about, is similar to what I shared previously with you around when we were operationalizing some initiatives into the community during COVID, where we were trying to combine sources of revenue Mm -hmm. from 
um, Flex Services, which was part of the old Mass Health ACO. I know it's part of the new one, but this was under the old one. The Mass Health ACO, philanthropic dollars for donors that were interested in helping our mission and helping in the community. Some contracts that we had from our food service vendor that they had excess surplus and excess staff. Well, I shouldn't say excess, but more staff than they were able to use at the time due to the shutting down of you know various operations. And then community benefit dollars to bring those together to look more strategically at how we might impact food insecurity Mm -hmm. in a larger cohort, not just for our risk patients, but also for the community at large. So that's sort of what we're trying to do now, sort of on a small scale, in looking at the mental health crisis and mental health access in leveraging our sort of strategy is really to leverage what's existing to piggyback on or ride the coattails of some of what is outlined in the roadmap from former Secretary Sutter's for behavioral health, and then also lift up and leverage our partnerships to have greater impact across all of our disparate communities. Thank you for that. For those that are listening that may not be from Massachusetts, by the way, MassHealth is our Medicaid plan, effectively, says the state Medicaid. Like in other states, it's manifested through MCOs throughout the state. So if you hear that reference, that's where that's coming from. Nancy, I think sometimes when health systems engage with communities, you know, for lots of historical reasons that are very appropriate in my mind, there's a fair amount of mistrust and varying degrees of openness But that comes in tension oftentimes with they also have needs and need support and they need places to send patients, et cetera. How have you found that to be in in our community? And then where you do encounter that, how do you work with the community stakeholders to resolve that? So mistrust is sort of part of the tapestry and the landscape in which we have historically worked for a very long time. But what we've been doing as we've come together as a system and what I've been doing with my team is we're trying to build both our team's capacity as well as the community's capacity. So as I mentioned, I came from BIDMC, Mm -hmm. Bethesfield Deaconess Medical Mm -hmm. Center. Sorry, acronym. So we had a large $30 million determination of need for the new inpatient building. And I was very committed to making sure and setting up that process to be transparent, to be as community-driven and community-led as possible. What we recognized through that process is that while we have very well-established community partners that often tend to be bigger organizations, we wanted to try and tap into and address some of the philanthropic biases that we've sort of seen historically Mm -hmm. and use our dollars to sort of build capacity in the community. And so we've had to sort of create wrap around capacity building, around data, evaluation, engagement, facilitation, sort of all of those aspects. So as opposed to us coming in as a top-down telling folks what they needed to do, we tried to lift up and put scaffolding in place to help them be able to drive their process. We've been taking that, shall we say, sort of spreading that, both with my team. You know, we're in a financially challenging time. Mm -hmm. And so we're using our most valuable resource, our staff, to sort of build our own capacity internally Mm -hmm. to be able to sort of build that scaffolding and then also making our staff more accessible in the community. And I have a wonderful director of data and evaluation, Danielle Marable, and she has been doing evaluation, and they're available on YouTube, 
know the link, but I'll get that for you guys. There are evaluation workshops to make sure that multiple community partners understand sort of some aspects of the regulation and also understand the data and evaluation aspects. So that makes them both more competitive and more able Mm -hmm. to have and measure their own impact and tell their own story. Is an enablement strategy. Yes. Yeah, that sounds great. Very clearly, we'll have to have more conversations around, as you mentioned, it's a complicated topic and we're just scratching the surface today. But can you talk a little bit about just the Flex program that we'll be concentrating on today? And then um, we'll talk to Kelly a bit more about how it fits into the Pop Health strategy. So the Flex program, right now, we are shall we say, a little bit more siloed than I think we need to be and should be. Mm -hmm. We have, my team and I, have made recommendations periodically to previously Beth Israel Deaconess Care Organization, as well as now Beth Israel Leahy Health Performance Network, to add different flex service providers and partners based on our work in the community. So Fresh Truck is one example of that, but we look forward to greater partnership to explore opportunities where we might better be able to collaborate and lift up the work that's happening in the community and have a more steady stream of non-grant dependent income. Awesome. Thank you. So, Kelly, I'm going to switch to you here in a minute. Bill Penn, as I mentioned before, is serves several functions. It's our managed care function, it's our network management function, but it's also our clinical function within population health. And folks that know me in past work, know how I feel about this, that very much this work, this community-based work, has to be an integral part of our strategy. Along with it, you know, our strategy and operations around social determinants and things like that are all part of that work. And I'm curious about how you view social care in terms of your career and how you've incorporated in your care management strategy and maybe a little bit about how it serves the greater purpose of BillPin and what it's trying to accomplish. Well, it's a loaded topic in trying to figure out where to start, you know. I think the attention currently that we're seeing on social determinants of health is a long time coming, right? It's always been there. It's not a new variable. I think that, you know, due to the recent pandemic that we went through, it really just kind of highlighted the needs and what gaps socially can do to one's health in infrastructure, you know, going without a stable housing environment or without access to food that is healthy for you. The stress and strain put on folks to try to provide for themselves and their families just in those domains really overtake anything else. You know, you're not really able to think about what do you need to do in regards to seeing your provider or getting a certain lab value or making sure your blood pressure is okay when you're really mostly concerned about, you know, how am I going to pay my heating bill this month or how am I going to put healthy food on the table for my kids? So I really think this is a pivotal time where it is of great concern. And, you know, most predominantly, I think we're seeing it within our public payers, specifically our Medicaid infrastructure, where they're recognizing the importance of this and that they're really writing in to your contracts that we need to do this, you know, and they're holding us accountable for that. It is the right thing to do. It's been the right thing to do for a long time. I'm hoping, you know, that we're going to see this. I think we are seeing this in some of the more Medicare infrastructure with some of the new models that are coming out, and hopefully that will continue to evolve. But, you know, the traditional fee-for-service Medicare programs don't really have 
the infrastructure in place for us to be able to provide these social supports like our current you know Medicaid ACOs have. So I mean when I think about social determinants of health I go back to you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs we just talked about it you know you need to have that strong base in place to be able to reach your pinnacle health and so these things are very important. So the work that's you know being done under Dan and Nancy is of vital importance. I definitely think that you know we have some great stories to tell within our Medicaid populations but you know we're seeing it and we're starting to bridge out we're seeing it elsewhere. We're currently through our health equity division looking at how do we address and assess for social determinant of health care gaps within patients who have chronic disease and how do we perhaps help ourselves from a financial perspective and total cost of care with our risk and accountable care contracts. How do we help ourselves by helping our patients help them in a social domain? You know we have an evolving role where we're deploying community health navigators similar to a community health worker that we have in place where we're looking at that. You know, are they able to, do they know what healthy foods are so that they can better manage their diabetes and their chronic disease? So I think that for BILPIN, B-I-L-H, as we look to define who are we in the scope and scale of population health, which this is, you know, we're coming together. This is kind of new for us where we're trying to define our path. We definitely can't lose sight of that, and I agree. I think it's very important to pull in folks like Nancy and the CBOs and try to leverage our connections better, and how can we deploy that in a smart way. Thank you for that. You are right at the intersection of, well, all three of you are in many ways. So, Dan, as a preview, uh, I'll be asking you a similar question. All of you are at the intersection of mission and operations and strategy, and I'm wondering, as you go to then execute, on the operation side, because you're having to design care management models, workflows, you know, our new Epic build, all those things. There are two or three of the top challenges in operationalizing community-based care and social care into the care management models that might be helpful for folks to understand. Sure. Two or three operational challenges in organizing that. I think, so one is funding and infrastructure, right? The need is vast and what can we do reasonably? So I think the funding source, whether it's grant funded or if it's through a shared savings, can we apply those dollars to building the infrastructure that we need? And the infrastructure is out there, again, in our CBOs. There are people that are doing this, have been doing this for many years, and they do it very well. So how do we work with them in a financially viable environment to deliver what we need for our patient population in the right scope and scale? So we can have an impact, so we can deliver it, but not, you know, for the lack of a better word, bleeding <laughs> and hemorrhaging dollars and trying to solve for some of these really, really significant social challenges that are out there today. So I think that's the first one. And then I think the second one is back to infrastructure would be, yeah, staffing and resource deployment. You know, how do you do this? And how do you connect? I think the connection part is difficult and is a challenge we have to solve for moving ahead. You know, how do we communicate within the different teams, so across BILH with our community-based organizations in, one, assessing and defining what the needs are and then connecting those folks to those resources. So I know that there's you know certain platforms and technology out there that's working on this and is looking to that. So how do we identify what those are and how do we leverage them smartly? I think we are incorporating those discussions in our one BILH journey and how to make those connections a little bit more seamlessly so that we can deliver the care that folks need and so that the CBOs have what they need from their regulatory perspective for reporting and things like that. So I think those are two big challenges. I think the last challenge I would say is really in the assessment of that. What are we using? Is there a standard 
template. There is a standard kind of slate of focus areas, but you know, if you talk even through BILH, if you talk to certain practices or groups, there might be a different assessment methodology. So I think, you know, really kind of keying in on that so we're all speaking the same language and that when we do identify an issue that we're able to apply a solution to it. You know, we can't assess and identify an issue and then not really have anywhere to go with that. So I think that would be the third thing that I think of as far as operational challenges. Maybe one last question before we transition to Dan, and we'll talk about a specific example of how this might work within our system. And that is, do you think patients expect their healthcare provider to be asking questions and perhaps providing remedies on things as personal as food insecurity and housing and things like that? Or do you find that your care managers, when they're reaching out, feel a little surprised, hesitant, perhaps a bit of the mistrust that we spoke about earlier? Does that manifest or are they open to it? I think it's a great question. And no, I don't think that patients and the general public expect to be asked in these domains. I think it is uncomfortable not only for the individual, the patient, but I think it is uncomfortable for the colleague, whether it's a physician, a provider, a care manager, a health navigator, a community health worker. In fact, you know, again, we have newly evolved or developed a community health navigator role. And in fact, in training them up, that has been a topic that's come up that, geez, you know, this question, it's really uncomfortable for me to ask. So kind of working within that, we do use a structured tool. We use the prepare, you know, an evidence-based accepted tool. Even just that reading the question is uncomfortable. So I do think it takes relationship building in some scale, getting to know the individual and build that trust to be able to get truthful answers or the confidence that if I tell you this, that you're going to be able to do something with that. No, Nancy, you wanted to chime in? Yeah, so I wanted to just add a couple of points related to the challenges. I think that the other piece of this is that if we're going to lift up the equity lens Mm -hmm. in our work, both for patients and community, it also has to rest in sort of the lens and include sort of the economic mobility piece, because that is truly the root cause of the food insecurity, the lack of access, lack of education. And so in doing that, the issue of the sort of operationalizing is that the smaller entities that are employing or are more rooted in communities that have historically been underserved don't have the capacity to spread and to mobilize and to sort of lift up for large volumes of patients. So we tend to go with the easier answer understandably no judgment, but with those that can have a very large footprint or a large regional aspect to their work. And by doing that, we eliminate possibilities both from a trust, a relationship, and an economic mobility and a community perspective. So I think in looking at, and that's some of the work that we have been doing in community benefits, is how can we build up smaller entities by looking at our model a little differently and potentially pre-funding Mm -hmm. or giving them opportunity to build that capacity. That's the one piece. The other, regarding the, to your question about, do people expect this? No, people don't expect this. I think I agree that there's a level of embarrassment But I think that there are lessons to be learned from the health centers, and the health centers have been doing this work before. I mean, the PREPAR, PREPARE, I never know how you say it, tool was actually tested and designed by the National Association of Community Health Centers and APCHO with health centers in mind by health centers. And they've been doing this more seamlessly 
than we have because of them being from the community, in the community, with the community, and about the community. So I think that there's opportunity. It just is how it's administered and who it's administered and being sort of more familial. Yeah, Dan, moving on to you, I want to ask a similar question from your perspective, both in terms of some of the challenges you see, you know, you're engaging with patients, and then similarly, your sense or thoughts about how you overcome maybe some of that initial hesitancy we were just talking about with Kelly and Nancy. Yeah, no, thanks, Rob. When I sit there and think about it, none of us, well, without being presumptuous, none of us can put ourselves in the shoes of the mass health or the Medicaid patient population. As far as the challenges, a lot of it is definitely with this patient population is the engagement. We have an amazing group of community health workers and community navigators, people at the practices. We started up something that in the flex services world, you know, be it from you know, Nancy and Dr. Doug Shu and Catherine Record, you know, coming together and creating these programs for both housing as well as nutrition. And we're still learning. We've only been in the program, the flex program right now for about three years. So a lot of the challenges come that no patient is exactly the same. Mm-hmm. As we'll talk later, you know, there's patients that need a little bit more hand-holding and some which are kind of the go-getters. So I think from the challenges that we have seen on the ground, a lot of it is that there is a significant need for housing. And as we've seen through the papers, that there's not an awful lot of housing that's available a lot of times patients are hopeful that they can be rapid rehousing or housing. So when that's not available, it's working with them to try to show compassion and tell them that, well, this is a realistic time frame that you have in order to be able to get housing. And whether it's putting them on lists or working to keep them engaged with their landlords or helping them with utility payments. There are just so many challenges that these patients are facing and you know the work that Mac McBetty and Christine Willette are doing with their CHW teams is paramount to be able to get these patients the help that they need. From an infrastructure standpoint, we've had many successes and there are those challenges that they that they discussed. I'm looking forward to seeing that as we enter in the new waiver of the Mass Health ACO, how we're going to progress from here. Mm-hmm. We're hoping to, as part of this exchange is make it pretty concrete for our listeners. And so I'm wondering if it's okay you share a story that we discussed about how this manifests. This is one of many examples I know and uh, all sorts of complexity, but maybe starting with one example might be good. I'd love to. There are many examples of successes that we've had in the flex services space over the past three years. One person that kind of jumped up was this patient, and we'll call her Jill. And she is a patient with some significant behavioral as well as physical health issues, severe PTSD, anxiety, depression, severe GI issues. And Jill had been referred to our VINFEN social service organization for housing. And so the housing coordinators discussed the options. She went out, she found housing for herself. She worked with the navigator in order to be able to work on getting the finances, and she just kind of went above and beyond what a lot of our other uh, members do. So just to give a little background, this patient had a refrigerator which stopped working, and when she asked the landlord to fix the refrigerator, Mm -hmm. he said that the company would not do that, and it would be an expense that she would have to incur. Right. And she didn't have the money at that time to be able to take care of it, so all the food that 
was in her fridge, spoiled. She had such anxiety and PTSD about dealing with that that she kind of left it, and it made a pretty obnoxious odor that was emanating throughout not only her unit, but also through the hall. The landlord at that point approached her and stated that she needed to clean it, he said several times, and then while well, he was also in the process of selling the unit or selling the building, served her with a notice to quit. And wow. at that point, she really kind of ramped up her discussions with Ben Ben. And she went out, found the housing. She came up with funds in order to be able to pay for the next couple of months, be able to pay for movers. Ben Ben worked with us. We were able to secure first and last. And the patient was just so overwhelmed by the situation that when we reached out and said, yes, we can approve, we'll get her moved on this date, we'll get the funds over right. to the management company right. on this date, she was overwhelmed and she had tears of joy. And Vinfen reached out to us just to say how appreciative she was of everyone at Beth Lee Health and the Flexible Services Program. So we're hoping to see a lot more of the success stories. I imagine for anyone navigating that level of complexity is challenging. And then you add mental illness on top of it, it very easily gets overwhelming. So I imagine not only the direct funds, but just the navigation and coordination of it and taking that off her plate was amazingly impactful, it sounds like. Yeah, she was scared because it was just her and she just had a landlord and the landlord was threatening her. And one of the things that our community health workers do a great job on is, one of the many things, is instilling trust. They have to build trust mm -hmm. in these patients. And they are very matter of fact and said, this is what you need to do. And 95% of our patients are able to do that. And just being able to have that trust, individuals another person to be able to confide in. And that's really, really all that the patient is looking for, someone to advocate for me, someone right. to help for me. So yeah, it's a beautiful thing when it all comes together. Yeah, no, absolutely. When we think about all those services that were provided, I think there are folks, perhaps even colleagues of ours, but certainly folks out there in the world that feel that it may not be the role of healthcare to do everything that was done for this person. I'm going to guess that this group is going to be pretty biased with a different point of view, given the work that all of you do. But maybe because you have the floor, if you can think about, is there a short version as to why we should be doing this work? If you're making the case for why healthcare needs to be more involved in navigating these kinds of non-medical things for patients. I mean, you were arguing your case in front of folks that maybe feel differently. Do you have thoughts on that? I can start. You know, I come from a family of doctors and I never became one. So this is my way of giving back. But I look at everyone that is in healthcare, having been in sales, I've been in finance, is that everyone I've encountered in healthcare just gives and gives so much of themselves and has just the patient in their best interests. I think that each person kind of takes it upon themselves. It may not be written on somewhere, but they take it upon themselves to make sure that at the end of the day, when the patient leaves their care or leaves their office, that they leave with both hope and the trust that they'll be okay. And I think a lot of this mass health population just wants to know that they're gonna be okay, that they'll have food in their refrigerator and that they'll have a roof above their head or they have clothes on their back. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Joy. I would add in, and I'm going to speak, I'm a nurse, 
So what comes to mind, immediately jumps into mind, is nursing is historically, year after year, the most trusted profession, right? But I'd like to link that to healthcare in general. So it's not just a nursing function. People go into healthcare because they want to help people. It's as simple as that. You ask anybody, why did you go into whatever it might be, whether it's nursing or physician practice or a rad tech or anything in healthcare, they go into it because ultimately, at the end of the day, they want to impact people. So I'd like to think that it naturally fits within that domain because, you know, people are struggling and they may not know where to go and who to talk to and where do I bring this and how do I, what are the resources? How do I access the resources? So why not bring it to healthcare? It just fits. It makes sense. You know, we are entrusted with the patient's confidence that we're going to try to do what we can to help them. And it's really branching out from just the physical medical perspective now into the social behavioral health, in fact, that we need to kind of branch out and look a little more holistically at what's affecting one's health outside of just disease process. You know, you could make linkages into healthcare reform and you could get into all of that infrastructure and total cost of care and why it's the right thing to do, which it absolutely is, because ultimately we need to address these fundamental elements in order to impact the rise in chronicity of disease. People are living longer. Just the impacts on infrastructure on the long range is massive. So that's my thought. Nancy, any comment? So... Admittedly, from an efficiency perspective, I struggle with this, mm-hmm. right, in this model where we're partially fee-for-service and partially risk-based. But if I take a step back and go to the 30,000-foot view, and I look at it from personal perspective of every person wants to be healthy, and every my guess is everyone in this room and at this table wants their family to be healthy and wants themselves to be healthy and wants to stay in their home. So if we look at it from the perspective of what we want for ourselves and our family, we should want for our patients and our community, then to me, it's the right thing to do. Understanding that there are lots of struggles related to the funds flow and the return on investment and how it works, but it's the right thing to do to keep people in their community healthy, happy, and thriving because it makes us all better and makes every community stronger. Well, as we close, I just want to thank all three of you for the work that you're doing. And it goes without saying that I agree with you. This is important work that we need to be doing. And I'm glad that all of you have built the programs that you've built, that your teams are doing what they're doing, and that you're having the impact that you're having. And it also leads me to think that we probably need to do a couple more episodes to take some deeper dives on these topics. But we'll save that for another day. But thank you so much for your time today. And thanks, everyone, for listening. If you have comments, please uh, leave comments on social media and rate us on your favorite podcast app. And thanks for listening. We'll be back in a couple weeks.